0: Uh, I love those words. Behold our God. He is seated on his throne. He is not standing, walking around, pacing in the throne room of heaven, wondering how things are going to pan out. He is seated. Psalm chapter 2. He who sits in the heavens... Laughs, he sees everything that's happening, he knows all of the plans of wicked mankind, and he knows they will not prosper. And then he weeps alongside of those who weep, he mourns with those who mourns. Psalm 56, 8, he holds every tear that we cry in a bottle. He knows he's near to the brokenhearted. And it is to his word that we have the privilege of turning this morning. The God who is seated on his throne is the God who addresses us now. If you have your copy of God's Word, take it and turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. As you guys are turning there and we continue in our series studying the Passion Week of Christ, we have three goals that we stated at the very beginning, and they are to know, to apply, and to grow to know the events of the Passion Week, to know the chronology of the Passion Week, and to know it maybe in a deeper way than you've ever known before, but more specifically to feel those events as if they had just happened last week, not 2,000 years ago, but to feel as if we're reminiscing on what transpired last week, to apply historical narratives, to learn how to apply stories in the Bible, not just uh, principles from imperatives, but actual stories and historical narrative, And then to grow in our affection for Jesus Christ, to grow as we look at the Savior, as we stare at his beauty and his glory and his majesty, to grow in our affections for Jesus. So know, apply, and grow. We began by looking at the triumphal entry. Uh, We saw Jesus' making, sovereignly making that event happen, right? He made a promise, the next time that you see me enter Jerusalem, it will be to the cheers of the people saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you and I had been there, we wouldn't have said that that was going to be possible. He made it happen by taking the long way around from Ephraim through Samaria, through Galilee, down uh, to Jerusalem. Goes into the city, looks around and leaves on Sunday. He sees everything that's going on in the temple. He looks around, he leaves, he goes back to Bethany where he's going to spend the night. Then in the morning, on Monday morning, he's going to crest over the Mount of Olives again as he comes from Bethany to Jerusalem. He's going to see a fig tree because he is hungry. He's going to see that it has leaves on it, which would mean that it's going to have fruit, but he goes to it, it has no fruit. He walks into the Temple Mount after cursing that fig tree, and he cleanses the temple. And we looked at that last week, why those two go together, the cursing of the fig tree, the cleansing of the temple. After he cleanses the temple, he goes back again to Bethany, where he will spend the night, Monday night. Tuesday morning, he's going to wake up. He's going to walk into Jerusalem. As he's walking on his way into Jerusalem, the disciples are going to see that fig tree that he cursed, and they're going to say, Wow, Master, you cursed this fig tree yesterday. We just expected, because the curse was very specifically, no one's going to eat fruit from you ever again. And so we just thought, that's it. The tree's just going to sit there, and nobody's going to eat fruit. But you actually withered it from the ground up. It's gone. It's dead. It's completely shriveled up. And Jesus is going to explain why that happened. We already covered that last week. Then he's going to go into Jerusalem, and he's going to take over the temple yet again. And he's going to teach. People are going to bring questions to him, and he's going to answer them, one after another, after another, after another. You remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders on Monday, as they see what Jesus is doing by cleansing the temple, they know they need to get rid of this man. It says that they conspire together how they can destroy him, but they're afraid of the crowds. The crowds love him. Millions of people are on his side. And so if we kill him, the crowds are going to kill us. So they develop two plans. Plan A, let's get the crowds to turn on Jesus. And then we can say, let's do whatever we want, and the crowds will mob him and kill him, kind of like what we see in the book of Acts, with Stephen being stoned by the mob. That's plan A. Let's get the crowds on our side. And Tuesday is all about that plan trying to be enacted. Plan B, if plan A fails, is let's take him by night and kill him ourselves. And we're going to see that plan A isn't going to work. But plan A involves, uh, you have to go into a Jewish mindset to understand what they're trying to do. In America, if I want to show somebody that I'm superior to them, you can use the uh, favorite phrase of America, take this outside, right? Let's take this outside. You think you're better than me? Let's take this outside, and I'll show you by my bronze. I definitely won't. Uh, You you can look at me, and I'll just concede right now. You'll beat me. Uh, But that's the way that we, in America, decide to show each other I'm superior to you. We'll, We'll wrestle. We'll fight it out. In a Jewish culture, the way that they duke it out, so to speak, is by not using their brawn, but using their brain. In order to show that I'm superior to you in a Jewish mindset and a Jewish mentality, the way to show you that I'm superior to you is to ask you a question that you can't answer. I can show you I'm better than you. My mind is superior to your mind. My intellect is better than your intellect. I can show you the crowd that I'm better than you by asking a question you cannot answer and then showing you I have the answer to it. You see this even in the movie Fiddler on the Roof, right? You see questions being asked of each other to figure out uh, what's the answer to this, and you're trying to almost stump each other. Sometimes they're genuine questions, but usually it's to try and stump each other. Does the Torah say this? Does the uh, Talmud say that? That's exactly what the religious leaders are going to do on Tuesday, to get the crowds on their side. They're going to go to Jesus with questions to try and trap him so that the crowds will say, oh, the religious leaders actually are far superior to this man who claims to be Messiah, and if the religious leaders are better than him, then he can't be Messiah, and he's a fraud, and he's a blasphemer, and we should kill him. So let's read in Mark 11, verses 27 through 33, just the first question together, and then we will ask God's blessing on our time, and we'll dive into the rest of our text this morning. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. They, that's Jesus and his disciples, came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people. For everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. So answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Father, we come before you now, and we have sung about you being on the throne. We've sung about your authority, and here we see your authority on display in very real ways on Tuesday morning of this Passion Week. God, this most important week in all of human history, we long to not only know the events, but to let those events be a mirror to our own lives today. We might not be like the religious leaders in attempting to try and trap you in a statement. But, oh, we're so like them in the way that we argue with your authority. So, Father, help us to be teachable and humble this morning to see these questions and to see ourselves in light of these questions as we come before your word now and see our Savior's glory on display. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Four different questions that are asked of Jesus. Four different questions. We're just going to go through each one and see the implications of each question, how Jesus answers each question. So question number one in Mark 11, verses 27 through 33 that we just read is a question of authority. This is a question of authority. It was asked mainly by the Sadducees, which makes sense, because remember, the Sadducees are the ones who control the temple. Pharisees control the synagogues. Sadducees control the temple. Sadducees are the ones that Jesus just went into their territory on their turf and destroyed their biggest means of commerce in the entire year. And so they ask him, verse 27, Uh, Verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things? If you're an underliner in your Bible, if you circle things in your Bible, you could circle these things and you could draw a line and you could put cleansing the temple. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to cleanse the temple? This is our territory. You don't own it, we do. So how dare you come to our turf and kick us around and tell us what to do? Who gave you the authority? That's what they're asking. And Jesus says, I'm gonna ask you a question. You answer me, then I'll answer you. And he asks, was the baptism of John, so this isn't not, it's not just the actual physical baptizing, but John the Baptist as a whole, his ministry of identifying with the message of the gospel, that's what baptism is, right? Baptism isn't mystical or magical, you don't get dunked in the water and then have your sins washed away. Baptism is a representation of identifying with the message of the gospel, proclaiming I'm a part of this covenant community. And what was the community that John was proclaiming? The Lamb of God is going to take away the sins of the world. The Messiah is here. Follow him. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, was the baptism of John? Was John's ministry and message, was it from God or was it from man? Was he made popular, and John the Baptist was hugely popular, was he made popular because God sent him as a prophet, or was he made popular not because he was a true prophet, but just because people thought he was a prophet? They followed him as a prophet, but he wasn't really. He was made popular just because of the crowd. Which was it? And as we read, you know their answer. They're stuck. Because if they say he was a prophet sent by God, then Jesus is going to say, well, what did he teach? If he's a prophet sent by God, what was his message? His main message was, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Follow him. I must decrease. He must increase. So if they say, well, God sent him as a prophet, then all Jesus has to say is, well, then what was his message? Why didn't you listen to his message? His message is, I'm Messiah. But if they say he wasn't really a prophet, he was just made famous by the mob, by the crowds, if they say that, then they undo the exact purpose of this question in the first place. They're trying to get the crowds on their side to go, yeah, who gave you the authority to do this? And if they tell Jesus that John really wasn't sent by God, the crowds just made him famous, but they kind of got duped. They're really, they're really naive, really ignorant. They believed this message of John, but it's not even a true message. The crowd is going to rise up and say, excuse me, how dare you? We know that man was sent by God. So either way, if they answer, they lose. And that's why they say, verse 33, we don't know. Now, that's not a fair answer. The answer is, we know, we just don't want to say. They know that John was sent by God. They know that John wasn't made famous by the crowd, but he wasn't really who he claimed to be. No, they know John is a prophet. They know the answer but they don't want to answer. So they say, we don't know. And that's why Jesus responds the way he responds. Neither am I going to tell you by what authority I do these things. I'm going to say, well, I don't know. I don't have to tell you either. I know why, what authority I have, and you know what authority I have. But I'm not going to tell you, just like you're not going to tell me. You know who John was. So they walk away, tails between their legs, absolutely floored, by this man that now not only has destroyed their main commerce for the whole year by taking over the temple and cleansing it, but now he has just shown them up in their own house, right? I used to play football out on this field. Uh, I didn't go to this school, but uh, we were bitter rivals of this school, and we always would come into this school, and if you play sports, you remember the, the typical saying, If you're playing at your home field, you would say, we must protect this house. Nobody comes in here and pushes us around. And then if you go to somebody else's field, your main goal is to show them to look foolish in front of their own family, in front of their own house, right? I want to go to their turf in their home stadium and just destroy them. That's exactly what Jesus does here. Sadducees are on their own home turf, and the crowds are around listening And they ask a decent question, excuse me, by what authority can you do these things? And Jesus shows them up, embarrassed, not gaining the crowds at all. They walk away thinking, we have to figure out how to get this guy out of here. But here's my question for us this morning. Do we ever ask that question? Maybe you're not asking, okay, God, why do you cleanse the temple, but I know that we've asked the question, excuse me, by what authority are you doing these things in my life? Uh, Who gave you the authority to do that in my life? I, I liked my life the way it was, and you just kind of ruined what my plan was. Why are you doing these things to me? What right do you have to do these things to me? I know we ask this question a lot of God. Excuse me, God, can you answer for all the decisions you're making in my life. I had a purpose. I had a plan. God, why are you allowing this? Why are you changing my plan? Let's write down a couple verses. Romans chapter 11, verse 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? for from him and through him and to him are all things. So to him be the glory forever. Amen. Or Job 42 verses 1 through 6, Job answers the Lord after asking question after question. He says, okay, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. So hear now and I will speak. I will ask you, you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Can I ask your heart this morning, do you resist or rest? In God's authority over your life. Do you resist his authority or do you rest in his authority? You can argue with God's authority, you can try and diminish his authority in your life with accusations that you know better or you would act differently, you would choose a better option, but you'll never be able to trap Jesus in any wrongdoing. All of his workings in our lives will ultimately be seen to be the best, the wisest, and the ones that we would choose ourselves if we had all of the information and knowledge that he has. That's the first question that's asked of Jesus. It's a question of authority. The second question in Mark chapter 12, verse 13 through 17, is a question of taxes, a question of taxes. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. They then sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him. So they've conspired together. We're still on Tuesday, but they've conspired together. Let's let's think up a really good question to trap him to make him look like a fool, and to get the crowds on our side. That's the whole goal. And you need that as the goal of the backdrop of this question. They want to trap him in a statement. And so they come to him, verse 14, and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you're truthful. You defer to no one. You're not partial to any, but you teach the way of God in truth. So they're trying to butter him up there, right? They're trying, just, just think, put your, put your feet in their sandals, okay? We're on the Temple Mount Uh, it's uh, winter, right? We're we're, uh, entering into the end of March. We're going to hit early April, but we're right at the end of March. Uh, It's cold. Maybe it feels a little bit like it feels today. Maybe people, it's early on Tuesday morning. Maybe people are trying to stand in the sun, like people are standing over there trying to get warmed up. It's dusty. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of noise. People are going, shh, quiet, quiet, quiet. I'm trying to hear the master. And you can see all the religious leaders, right? They wear the garb, they wear the garments, they're just beautiful robes and adorned with all gold. So you can see them and they don't look happy. And then you can see this massive crowd that's circling around watching this quote unquote fight happen. And you can see the Pharisees and you can see Jesus and his disciples and it's almost like they're facing off. And you're leaning in, you're trying to listen. Maybe there's somebody really tall in front of you. And Excuse me, can you please get out of the way? I want to hear. You're there in the middle of this discussion. And you hear the Pharisees say, oh, we know that you are an amazing teacher. We know you don't defer to anybody. You're truthful. You're not partial to anything. And somebody goes, that's fishy, right? Do they, you know, you lean over. Do do they really believe that about Jesus? Some people are like, see, I knew it. The Pharisees love him. They, they want to respect him. And so the crowd's pressing in, going, what's happening here? The Pharisees are drawing people in. And they ask this question. It's a, it's a staggeringly good question. For all of the grief that we get the Pharisees, that is righteously deserved, because Jesus himself curses them, this, this is an A plus as far as a good question if you want to trap somebody claiming to be Messiah. He says, they they say this, teacher, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Do we have to pay to Rome or do we not have to pay to Rome? Now, you know why this is a great question. If the religious leaders want to get the crowds on their side and turn against Jesus, this is the way to get it done. What does Jesus claim to be? He claims to be Messiah. What is Messiah's main job according to Judaism? His main job is to deliver them from their oppressive enemy, their political oppressive enemy. That's Rome. So what should Messiah say to this question? Should we submit to Rome? Should we pay money to Rome? Should we respect and honor Rome? Messiah would say no, because we're going to go destroy them. We're about to kill them all. The Pharisees know that Jesus is not going to say that And so they know this is is a good question because the crowds are wanting Messiah to say, don't pay money to Rome. In fact, let's get arms ready to go because we're killing them on Thursday and Friday. But instead, verse 15, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? To which people in the crowd would have gone, see, I knew it, right? They're just trying to butter them up. I knew that they weren't being honest. Bring me a denarius to look at they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Whose likeness and inscription, those are two words that you could also translate uh, image and likeness. Whose image and likeness? same words used in Genesis, that we are made in the image and the likeness of God. So Jesus says, you and I are made in the image and likeness of God. We have God's stamp on us. His image is on us, in us, and therefore we belong to him. He owns us, and so too there's a coin. This denarius has the image and likeness of Caesar on it, and it belongs to him. So Jesus in the most simple way, answers their question and stuns the crowd. Because the crowd's waiting for him to say, death to Rome, and instead he says, pay taxes to Rome. And nobody rises up in that crowd and says, how dare you? You're not the Messiah. In fact, my Bible says they were all amazed at him. So this very good question designed to trap Jesus actually gets the crowds to love him even more. They're amazed at his wisdom, his brilliance, his simplicity, the beauty of his answer. While they would say we don't want Rome over us in power, they would not argue with this answer. They'd say, yes, you're right, we should. We are gods and we render to God ourselves. We give ourselves to God. His image and likeness is on us. But we are also in this country with rulers over us that we need to honor and submit to. And so they're all amazed at his answer. The things, there are things that belong to the government as well for us today. I think that this absolutely, in God's perfect timing, fits for us today. Our government, no matter who is president, no matter what administration is there, our government deserves our respect our joyful submission, our prayers, and our love. These are biblical commands. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. In fact, you know what? Let's turn to these. I want want your eyes to see these these verses. Romans chapter 13. Maybe one day soon we, we will study these verses to just talk about what it looks like to submit to the government. But Romans 13, verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. We're talking Nero as Caesar. And Paul says, be in subjection to him. There's no authority except from God. Those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it's a minister of God to you for your good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It's a minister of God, an avenger of those who who bring wrath on those who practice evil. Therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake for because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So render to all what is due to them. I think Paul's getting this exactly from Tuesday of the Passion Week. Render to all what is due to them. Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor is due. Turn to First Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to a governor as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as... Uh, covering for evil, but use it as slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, honor the king. You remember 1 Peter, the context is suffering because of the king. The king is telling Christians should be persecuted. And Peter says, honor the king. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter two, one other passage. 1 Timothy chapter two, this is what we should be doing even Today, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Pray for your leaders, submit to your leaders, love your leaders, don't fight against them. So my question to us this morning, as the Pharisees asked, should we pay taxes to Caesar? They're trying to trap and test Jesus. I don't think that we ask that question that way, but can I ask our hearts this morning, do you test or trust Jesus and his word? Do you test his word? Do you read these verses and say, yeah, but there's some qualifications that need to be made. There's, there's some addendums to these verses about honoring the government. What if it's a bad administration? There's addendums to this. What if, what if it's somebody we disagree with? Do you test his word, or do you trust his word? Some may think, okay, who, who are you, Jesus, that you have the right to tell me who I have to obey? I know who we're having to follow. I know this administration. I know these people. And God, you don't understand you can argue with God's authority. You can try and reason away his command for honoring and submitting to the governing authorities, You praying for them, respecting them, and loving them, but you will never, ever trap Jesus or catch him asking you to do anything that is wrong, ever. You'll never prove yourself to be superior to, to what he's commanding you. You'll never prove that his commands for you are anything less than for your greatest good and for your greatest satisfaction. They are all amazed at his statement, I believe we too should be amazed at his statement as well. Back to Mark. Mark chapter 12, third question. So first, we have a question of authority. Second, we have a question of taxes. Third, we have a question of marriage in heaven. Question of marriage in heaven. This is Mark chapter 12, verse 18. We're back to Sadducees. By the way, it's, it's very easy to remember who's asking these questions. First question is asked by the Sadducees. By what authority are you cleansing the temple? They own the temple. That's the Sadducees. Then it's the Pharisees' taxes. Then it's going to be a Sadducees' question about marriage, and then it's going to be a Pharisee about the question of the greatest commandment. So this third question asked by the Sadducees, Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. Some Sadducees, parenthetical statement here, who say that there is no resurrection, that's very needed because the whole premise of their question is going to be about the resurrection, about a physical afterlife. They come to Jesus and they begin questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. This is uh, the principle of lever at marriage in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, uh, so that you can continue the lineage of your family name. So that's the foundation of this question. Verse 20, there were seven brothers. First took a wife, died leaving no children. The second one married her, died leaving behind no children. The third likewise. And so all seven left no children. And then last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, this woman was married to seven men in this life. So in the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? Because all seven were married to her. So you have this absurd story. Of this woman marrying seven men and all husbands passing away, which, if I'm the fourth or fifth, I'm not signing up to marry this woman because apparently she is poisonous in her cooking. But you can see Jesus' response. I love this response. He cuts right through their statement. And he says to them, verse 24, is this not the reason that you are mistaken? So here's the reason why you don't understand that. Remember, we're all pressing in, we're all a crowd gathered around, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, and Jesus and his disciples We're watching this battle of wits and battle of intellect happen. And he says, after this story, which if the Sadducees say the story, we as the crowd are going, hmm, I don't think that that sounds very realistic, but I wonder what Jesus is going to say. And so we all press in, and Jesus' response is, the reason why you don't know the answer to that question is because you don't know the scriptures. I think that that would probably get a little ooh from the crowd, right? Like, whoa. Because these are, these are experts in the law. These are lawyers. These are experts in the law. They know the Torah. And Jesus just called them out for not knowing it. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God here's the answer. When they rise from the dead, not if, but when, you don't believe there's a resurrection, Sadducees, but I'm telling you there is, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given a marriage. They're like the angels in heaven. So uh, humans aren't married to humans in heaven. We are all collectively, the church, married to Christ. So we aren't married to each other in heaven, just like angels aren't married to each other in heaven. That's Jesus's answer. (laughs) Basically, dumb question. Here's the easy answer, but let me move on to a better question. And I love this. Verse 24. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again. So they didn't even ask this question. He knows, the Sadducees, he knows they don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. They didn't ask, is there a resurrection from the dead? But Jesus says, I'm going to answer that question that you didn't even say. He knows their hearts. He knows what they think. And so he says, regarding the fact, you don't think it's a fact, Sadducees, but it is a fact, that the dead rise again. Have you not read in the book of Moses? He's going to go back to the Torah and the book of Moses, the first five books. Very interesting question. If I were to ask you, prove to me that there is a resurrection from the dead, only using the Old Testament, where would you go? Maybe Daniel chapter 12, maybe Job. Uh, I know that my Redeemer lives. Maybe, maybe David. I, I will not uh, see my son again. He's not going to come to me, but I'm going to go to him and I will see him again in the next life. There's a lot of places you can go in the Old Testament to find this principle of there being an afterlife. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 is one of them, right? God has placed eternity on our hearts. We all know something happens. But I can tell you, I would never have picked the verse that Jesus goes to. Jesus is going to prove to the Sadducees from the Old Testament that there's a resurrection from the dead. Where would you go? I would never have gone here. He goes to the burning bush. Like, if you think burning bush, you don't think, oh, yeah, resurrection from the dead, of course. He goes to the burning bush. He goes to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Now, why does he go there? There's a number of reasons why he goes there. One of them is because this is the only place that the Sadducees would agree is actual scripture. Sadducees did not believe anything outside of those five, first five books uh, in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those were the only books that the Sadducees believed were actual scripture, were authoritatively God's word. So all of the examples I gave, Daniel, uh, David, Job, they'd go, those are great books, but that's not scripture. That's not actual authoritative scripture. This is really helpful for even us in apologetics and evangelism. As we're sharing the gospel, we need to step inside of their understanding and use what they're using. And he does that. Okay, let me. I'll, I'll, I'll play your game. I'll, let's just say that those five books are the only books. I can still prove to you from just those five books that there's an afterlife. Why else does he go to this passage? He says, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush how God spoke to Moses saying, quote, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now again, we're a crowd pressing in on Jesus, and the disciples, and the Pharisees. We're pressing in, and we go, yeah, how do you prove there's an afterlife from the Old Testament? He goes, from the burning bush. Really? I don't know. Well, let's keep listening, and Jesus says, God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I'm, I'm a member of the crowd, and I go, Wait, but how? What I'm still confused here. That didn't tell me that there's an afterlife. How? You just realize that what Jesus is saying, he's proving that there is a resurrection from the dead. There's an afterlife after we die by the tense of a verb. Did you catch it? I am the God of Abraham." Now Abraham is long gone, right? Abraham passes away in the middle of Genesis. We're in Exodus when God speaks to Moses. We're hundreds of years later and Abraham's gone. And yet, God does not say, I was Abraham's God. I used to be his God, but he's dead, and so no no longer am I his God. No, I am his God. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. All men who had passed away and God says they're still alive and I'm still their God. That's why he says in verse 27, he is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Every word, every tense of every verb in the Bible matters. This is why we don't play fast and loose with this book. We don't just say, hey, whatever I want this book to mean, kind of seems to me that this is what it says. No, every tense of every verb, it's so specifically important to us that we give careful attention to it. We study it. We pour as deeply as we can into it to understand the authorial intent. God has spoken clearly. The question is, are you going to take him as, at his word? Or are you going to fight against it with your own reasoning? Are you going to make it say what you want it to say? This is a massive book. You can make it say pretty much anything you want it to say if you misinterpret it. So the question that I have for our hearts based off of this third question of marriage in heaven is, do you attack or do you adore the word of God? Do you attack it or do you adore it? Do you put up your guards around it, or do you say, you know what, God, speak clearly through your word so that I would be changed? You can argue with God's word. You can even raise objections against the afterlife. Who are you to tell me what happens after I die? I'm going to figure it out for myself. Who are you to tell me how I can be saved? I can figure that out on my own. You can try to diminish his authority in your life by making excuses not to get into this book or finding other authorities to base your life choices on, or by claiming that this book is not God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. But here's what you can never do. You cannot trap God with your own reasoning. In fact, this book is going to prove to you, if you dive into it, to be sweeter than honey, to be better than fine gold and many riches. It's able to make you wise. It provides help and light in a dark world. It brings salvation to those who receive it for what it is. Not words from man, but words from God himself. Do you attack or do you adore his word? Jesus said at the beginning in verse 24, here's the reason why you're mistaken. And then he says at the end of verse 27, you're greatly mistaken. The religious leaders are asking all these questions to get the crowds on their side. If you have have Jesus right here in the middle, you have the religious leaders over here, you have the crowds over here, the religious leaders are just trying to pull the crowds away from Jesus over to their side. And they've completely lost them. I mean, every time Jesus opened his mouth to respond, they're just going, this guy's amazing, he's brilliant. They've lost it, they've completely lost it. Everybody hears these answers, and they're blown away by his glory and his wisdom. And that's why the fourth question is even asked. You guys know this question. This is question number four. This is a question of the greatest commandment. So we have a question of authority. By what authority do you do do these things? We have a question of taxes. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? You have a question of marriage in heaven. And then you have a question of the greatest commandment. Again, this is a Pharisee that's going to come up and ask him. After all these stunning responses, this Pharisee is going to ask a question, but this seems to be a different kind of question. Those other questions were testing, trapping questions. This actually seems to be a very genuine question. Based off of all the wisdom and authority that this man has seen as Jesus has responded to these crazy questions, this man says, hey, I've got a genuine question he heard them arguing, he recognized that he had answered them well, verse 28, and so he asks Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? What's the greatest commandment? Jesus answers and says, the foremost, the greatest, is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is This, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said, and right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one. There's no one else besides him. To love him with all your heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently or with wisdom, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God you're not far from the kingdom. That's why I think this is a genuine question. I don't think he's trying to trap Jesus. He's genuinely saying, okay, we have all these laws. We have all these commands. Is there one that supersedes and owns all of them? And I love Jesus's answer, by the way. It doesn't really make sense grammatically because he says there's two commandments and that is the greatest commandment. I love that, right? Verse uh, 31. The second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment, that's in the singular, greater than these. That's in the plural. What Jesus is saying is if you live out the one, you'll live out the other. If you're not living out the one, you're not going to be able to live out the other. Love God, love people. That is the greatest commandment. And if you don't love God, you're not going to love people well. And if you're not loving people well, that means you don't love God. And if you love God well, that will naturally flow out to loving people well. It's one unified, it's two sides of one unified coin. And this Pharisee says, that's right. In in essence, that's what I'm trying to do, but I fail. When you go before the Lord with your questions, do you scrutinize God's commands or do you submit to them? God's given a command, love me more than anything else in the world and let that love that you have for me flow out to love your neighbor's. Do you scrutinize his commands? Do you say, yeah, but you don't know my neighbor, God? Are you like the the lawyer who tests him by saying, who is my neighbor? Tell me who I have to love and who I don't have to love. Who is my neighbor? Because just narrow down that circle for me. I'll do my best to love them, but I don't want to give love to anybody who I don't need to. And you remember Jesus' answer. It's not who your neighbor is. It's are you even neighborly, right? Are you even a neighbor? Will you even love so too here, Jesus reaffirms, here's the command, love God, love people. question is, do you scrutinize that command or do you submit to it? You can argue with God and you can think that you know better than him, that you have your reasons for why you don't follow certain commands in certain ways, but you can never trap God in an unwise, unhelpful, unkind command. Everything that he asks of you, everything that he asks is for your greatest good, for your greatest satisfaction, for your greatest joy, The question is just, do you trust him? Do you trust him? You can see at the end of verse 34, after that, after a series of four questions, one, the first one is a very angry one. Excuse me, who gave you the authority to do do these things? The middle two, about taxes and about marriage in heaven, are designed to try and trap Jesus. They fail. By the way, if you ever try to trap an omniscient God, a God who knows everything, you're always going to fail that trap is always going to be turned around and sprung in your face. Uh, So don't ever try and trap God. And then there's a genuine question, what's the greatest commandment? And after that question, no one, Mark chapter uh, 12, verse 34, would venture to ask him any more questions. (laughs) The religious leaders, yeah, we we dare not put our foot in our mouths again, because we were trying to get the crowds on our side, and we've lost them. It's kind of this tug-of-war. I don't know if you guys have ever played like a really serious, solid game of of tug-of-war where there's this big mud pit in the middle of you. And so losing the tug-of-war actually brings about very serious consequences. That's what's happening here, right? The crowds are in the middle of this game of of tug-of-war and Jesus is on one side with just a pinky, right? And his intellect and just kind of pulling on the rope. And the religious leaders with everything that they've got, they're trying to pull these crowds back to their side and it just is not working. They keep losing the crowds. So they say, well, our plan A failed. Our plan A failed. By the way, Jesus isn't done teaching. Since nobody else asks him any more questions, he says, well, it's still not nighttime yet. Let's use this time to teach. So he just starts teaching. He teaches on uh, his own um, messianic nature in Psalm 110, he teaches about being careful of the religious leaders. He teaches uh, the illustration of how they prey on widows and those that don't have money by looking at the widow who gave her last coin, and, and he's not saying, hey, but go be like her, be generous like her. He's saying, look at how the religious system is set up such that this poor woman is still having to give her money to this corrupt religious system. Uh, this is awful. This is bad. Um, He teaches the Olivet Discourse, which is all of Mark 13, all about the end times. I wish we had more time we could go through it. We'll kind of go through it when we go through Revelation in January. But it concludes in Mark chapter 14. Tuesday concludes, Mark chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. Just turn there and we'll be done for this morning. So Tuesday... Jesus walks into Jerusalem from Bethany. He sees the fig tree that he cursed. The disciples are amazed that it's actually withered up. He goes into Jerusalem. He takes over the temple and he teaches. Tuesday, T taking over temple teaching, right? Teaches on the fig tree, teaches on the temple mount. He teaches these four questions. Question of authority, question of taxes, question of marriage in heaven, question of the greatest commandment. And then he... Leaves. He goes to the Mount of Olives as he's going back to Bethany and he stops on the Mount of Olives, which is why it's called the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13. And he teaches about the end times and then he goes back to Bethany. But Tuesday isn't done. The last event that happens biblically on Tuesday is Mark chapter 14, verses one and two. The Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. Passover's Thursday, so we're still on Tuesday. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him for they were saying not during the festival otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Plan A, let's get the crowds on our side to fight against Jesus. They'll mob him, they'll kill him because they think he used to be Messiah but now no longer in their mind because our questions have solidified the fact that he's not Messiah. Plan A failed. Plan B. We got to take him when he's away from the crowds and kill him ourselves. When's the next time that's going to be? Once the next time that they know, without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus will be away from the crowds. It's going to be Passover because Passover, everybody goes to their homes. They hang out with their families. It's a family event. It's a family meal. That's when everybody's going to be away. That's going to be the night. So we know when we want to get him. Thursday night, Passover. The next question is just, where's the Passover going to be held? We need to know where it's going to be held. And they scratch their heads and they think, well, we don't know Where it's going to be held, we don't really have anybody we can ask. And then somebody says, Wait. I know one of his disciples hates him. In fact, he came to us. His name is Judas. He came to us on Friday before the triumphal entry. Mark 14 describes this event. On Friday before the triumphal entry, Judas is going to go to the religious leaders and he's going to say, You know what? I'm done with this guy. I hate him. I'm fine to turn him over to you. I've, I'm done. Remember, this was the whole story of the, the woman uh, breaking the alabaster violet perfume and, and Judas and the other disciples say, excuse me, that could have been sold for so much money and Jesus rebukes them. That's the moment when Judas says, that's the last straw, I'm done. And so he goes to the religious leaders before the triumphal entry and says, hey, if you ever need my help to get rid of this guy, I'm in. So Tuesday night, they say, we know when we're gonna take him. It's Thursday night, It's Passover but where is he going to be? Where is he taking the pastor? Where is he celebrating it? I don't know, but Judas will know. So let's get Judas, and let's start making a plan. We'll look at that next week, but for this week, we've seen the staggering glory of Jesus on display in fielding every question with grace, with clarity, with wisdom. This should lead us to worship, to wonder, to adoration, and to awe. But I just want to ask your heart and my heart yet again. Where in your life are you testing his rule over you instead of trusting? Where in your life are you scrutinizing his decisions that he's made instead of submitting joyfully to them? In what ways are you resisting his authority instead of resting in it? And how are you attacking his character instead of adoring him? Instead of challenging his authority today, will you cherish joyfully cherish it and submit to the one who knows all things, who is working for your greatest good, and who loves you, and who wants you to have the most satisfying, obedient, blessed life you could possibly have if you would simply submit to him. Will you cherish his authority in your life today? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the time that we can have in your word. We're thankful for the time that we can gather together around our Savior and watch as he interacts with these questions on Tuesday of the Passion Week. We are so thankful for the glory that we see, but we don't want to walk away just knowing more things. We want to walk away with greater affections for Christ and a genuine transformation taking place in our souls where we would say, okay, I see where I am not trusting your word where I, through my life, functionally, through my actions, through my thoughts, I'm actually questioning your authority. I'm questioning why you do what you do. God, may we take those questions to you, and then may we trust your character, press deeply into your nature and your goodness. You are good, and you are working for our greatest good and your greatest glory. Help us to trust you all the more today. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Hey, let's.